Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in John chapter 6, verses 14 through 24. This is the story of Jesus walking on water in the storm. There are two parallel passages here, Mark 6, verses 45 through 42, and later on I'm going to splice in an audio that I did on that, on that passage. And also there's a couple of verses in Matthew, Matthew 14, 22 through 23. This is one of the unusual places where John covers something that the other synoptic duck gospels cover. John, you recall, was talking mostly about Jesus' ministry down in Judea, and uh, he skips most of the Galilean ministry, but during the in the middle of the Galilean ministry, Jesus came down to a festival at Jerusalem, and then he went back. And when he went back, he fed the 5,000. John picks up with the Synoptic Gospels there and talks about the feeding of the 5,000 in the first 13 verses of John 6, which we covered in the last audio. After the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus, his disciples actually, get in the boat and cross, and Jesus walks on the water to meet them in the boat on the stormy sea of Galilee. So my discussion of Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52, which I'm going to splice in here in just a minute, covers completely John 6, 14 through 24, the story of Jesus walking on the water. So I'm going to splice that discussion in right here. We're going to talk about Jesus dismissing his disciples to leave the feeding of the 5,000 site in the wilderness around Bethsaida. We're going to watch Jesus walk on the water to those disciples and calm the storm. So let's start with Mark chapter 6, verses 45 and 46. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountains, mountain to pray. Now we're going to have to discuss this to Bethsaida because that provides a, good, a, a difficult harmonization problem. The other two parallels, which by the way are in Matthew 14, verses 22 through 23... In John 6, 14 through 15, in the other parallels, they didn't leave to go to Bethsaida. They went to left to go to Capernaum. So there's your problem. More precisely, it says in John 6, 17 that they were going to Capernaum. Well, Capernaum is not Bethsaida, so we're going to have to reconcile that. So we'll start off with that first. Dr. Lacona, the Bible scholar, says this is one of the most difficult harmonization problems in the scripture. He's got a bunch of attempted solutions at his website, but I'm just going to give you four solutions here. I'm going to start out with James White and the commentator Linsky, Lutheran commentator Linsky's solution. That's the easiest, if you ask me, that, the, that Mark says that they should go toward Bethsaida. Now, when I say Bethsaida, Julius, that's the Bethsaida, which was near where the feeding of the 5,000 was. Some people say there's another Bethsaida, Galilee, on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum, but we'll talk about that in a minute. But Bethsaida, Julius, is our, the Bethsaida near the feeding of the 5,000. So James White and Linsky say that the pronoun there, pros, or pros, I should say, pros, the Greek pronoun, should be translated this way in Mark chapter 6, 45. He made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of, ahead of him toward Bethsaida Julius instead of to Bethsaida, but toward Bethsaida Julius. Now, that would make sense if the feeding of the 5,000 had occurred a little bit south and a little bit east of Bethsaida Julius. And if you look at the map, Capernaum is almost due west of Bethsaida at the top of the northern top of the Sea of Galilee. So they would have to go toward Bethsaida Julius in the boat on their way to Capernaum. 
that harmonizes for me is good enough for me. Capernaum actually, after all, was actually considered a suburb of Bethsaida, according to James White and Linsky, so it was in the same general area, and you can look at a map and see that. That's, the, that's my way to reconcile it. Here's another possible way. Jesus ordered them to steer to one or other of the two places. Clark says this. In other words, Mark says, I want you to go to Bethsaida or Capernaum, whichever way the wind is most, most favorable. And John says, and they started across the sea to Capernaum, having been ordered by Jesus either to go to Capernaum or Bethsaida, whichever the way the sea is most favorable. Okay, not a bad idea. Or it could be that they were planning to go to Capernaum and there was another city called Bethsaida in Galilee and the wind shifted a little bit and they ended up in Bethsaida. Well, the problem with this is they've never found a Bethsaida in, on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so I tend to doubt that when I check that in BibleHub with the maps there, BibleAtlas.org, and they don't have anything about Bethsaida in Galilee. So I don't think that's a good one. Or it could be that they, the remote place where the feeding of the 5,000 took place could be east of Bethsaida Julius. They could have originally planned to go to Bethsaida Julius, but the wind blew them instead to Capernaum. Well, that's another idea. But anyway, I just think the idea to translate the pronoun a little bit different, they were going toward Bethsaida Julius, as James White and Linsky say, is a good reconciliation. Now, why the disciples are in their boat going back to Capernaum, Jesus dismisses the crowd. Now, why did he want to... Now, why did he want to send the disciples away at the same time he was dismissing the crowd, or actually a little bit before he dismissed the crowd? Well, here's some options as to why, perhaps. First, if the disciples were still there, it would have been hard to dismiss the crowds because the crowds would have seen the disciples. They say, aha, Jesus is going to stay here with his disciples because his disciples are still here. That means Jesus is going to come back from praying on the mountain, and he's going to still here do some more miracles, and we're not going to leave. But Jesus needed them to leave because, as we'll see in the John parallel, the people were getting ready to seize him and make him king and start a political revolution, which would have messed up Jesus' spiritual plans. And so he didn't want the people to come back. And so that's why he got rid of the disciples first, so that the people would not think that they were still planning to set up shop in that wilderness near Bethsaida. This is John Gill's idea. Another, Adam Clark's idea is the reason Jesus sent them away is because the disciples were afraid to get in the boat. And Jesus had to order them. Why were they afraid? They were afraid to go back into the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas. And they were afraid, to, or perhaps they were afraid to go along without Jesus, their protector. I find that hard to believe. He just sent them out on a mission trip by themselves. They didn't seem too afraid then. So I don't think Adam Clark's on the side of the angels with this one. Clark also has another option. Maybe Jesus had things to say to the multitude he didn't want the disciples to hear. Now, what would that be? I doubt that one, seriously. I think Adam Clark missed the boat on that. I think the real reason is he wants to get rid of the crowds. And so he sends the disciples away, figuring that would be a hint to the crowds that we're moving, so no use you hanging around here and trying to make me a political messiah. Now, the parallel passage in John 6, verses 14 through 15, gives us a lot more detail of this farewell that Jesus gave to the crowd and to the disciples. Reading there, we read this. When the people saw the sign he had done, what sign? Well, that was the feeding of the 5,000. They said, this really is the prophet who was to come into the world. That the prophet, capital P prophet, is capitalized in the English at least. That's referring to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, where Jesus where Moses, excuse me, predicted a prophet to come into the world. 
Therefore, when, when Jesus knew that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So here we get the detail. He not only went up to the mountain to pray, there was another reason he went to the mountain, to get away from the people who were trying to make him king. Now, the people saw this sign, the feeding of the 5,000. What was the purpose of the sign, the intent? It was to show people that Jesus was the bread of life and that he could give food for eternal life. Easy symbolism there. Now, here's the way the people interpreted the sign when they said, this, is, this really is the prophet, the prophet. When they were thinking of the prophet that was spoken like Moses, who would be like Moses, the Old Testament scripture says, Moses, how would he be like Moses? Well, Moses gave people food and water in the desert. He fed them in the desert. The bread, remember the manna, which was the bread and the water at Rephidim and Kadesh Barnea. Twice he gave them water when he struck the rock. So he provided food and water for the people in the desert. Now, there's no indication that Jesus provided water in the desert here in the wilderness around Bethsaida, but he did provide them food. And so they said, aha, this is Jesus. He's the prophet. And they expected the prophet to do no more than that. Well, they were going to learn later that Jesus, Jesus was going to do a lot more than feeding people 5,000, feeding 5,000 people in the wilderness. He was going to rise from the dead and take on his body, the sins of the whole world. This scripture in Deuteronomy 8:15, we ought to read it because it's very famous, referred to a lot in the New Testament. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. And that's, of course, referring to Jesus. Deuteronomy 18, 18, I will, rise up, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brothers. I will put my words, this is God speaking, I, God, will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. And yes, Jesus did that. Now, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray. Now, this was contrary to the customs of the Jews. They forbade praying in a place that was even a little raised. Why was that? Because the high places are where all the idols were, so they tried to pass a law against it. Jews are great about passing laws. Now, note the contrast here. Jesus ministers in public all day, and then he gets by himself alone to pray at night. Now, this is a good example of Christian workers to follow. You've got to balance off your ministry with prayer. You can't put one above the other. Now, the fact that he went up to the mountain to pray is, is good because is, is, is necessary for the story because it shows that Jesus could see way across the lake and see the disciples in trouble when the storm came as they were rowing their way back to Capernaum. shows why he had to walk on the water to get to the boat because he saw the disciples in trouble. Now, what was he praying about up there? Speculations. Well, he could have been praying about the crowds, trying to set him up as an earthly messiah. He didn't want that to happen. And the disciples had that notion, too, as we know from reading their history. They were constantly thinking about setting up an earthly king, and Jesus was having trouble making them see what he was actually about. That's what he could have been praying about. Now, how could these 5,000 men in the wilderness set Jesus up as king? That would have been enough to do it. For one thing, they knew they could be fed miraculously. They had just been fed. Supply would not be a problem. So it could have been done. And so it was a real fear that Jesus had. Jesus sent the disciples away because he knew they too wanted to make him king. And if the people and plus the disciples came together with kingship, political kingship on their minds, Jesus would have been in a world of trouble. Continuing with our story in Mark chapter 6, verses 47 through 50, when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. He was up on the mountain praying. He saw them being battered as they rode, and as I pointed out, he saw them because he was way up on a mountain. He could see across the Sea of Galilee. He saw them being battered as they rode because the wind was against them. Around three in the morning, he came toward them walking on the sea and wanting and wanted to pass by them. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke with them and said, Have courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. 
Now, according to John Gill, three in the morning, which is, the, I think, the Greek is the fourth watch, they had been at sea about nine hours because they left right at dusk there. That's what, about six o'clock or so, three in the morning, so about nine hours. That's a long time to be in the middle of a, of a hostile sea. They'd only gotten about 25 or 30 furlongs from the shore. John Gill says that maybe it was because they made no great effort to go fast because they hoped Jesus would catch up with them maybe by land. I guess they were figuring he was going to walk back. I don't know. That's highly speculative. But it's probably the reason they hadn't gotten very far as that wind was right dead in their face. Now, why was Jesus planning to pass them by? Well, Gill says it only looked like he was going to pass them by because he was walking fast and it looked like uh, he wasn't going to climb in the boat. He might have been just walking on by. He was going to go all the way to the other shore or whatever, but it looked like he was going to pass by. Now, it says that all saw him, for they all saw him and were terrified. Since everybody saw that, they knew it was not anybody's imagination that was producing the sight. This was not a ghost. Well, it could have been a ghost, I guess, but it wasn't an hallucination, let's put it this way. So Mark sets the stage here of a very dramatic situation. Let's go to Matthew 14. It says, Matthew 14, verse 23 through 24, After dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already over a mile from land, battered by the waves because the sea, because the wind was against them. About a mile is an extra detail. Actually, John says three or four miles. Again, of course, the Greek doesn't use English uh, English distance measurements. Home and Christian Study Bible gives it to gives uses them for us. So over a mile, three or four miles. It, it was a long. It was a good ways away, and it was battered by what? By the waves. Matthew tells us the waves were crashing over the gunnels of the boat. I would suspect. Now, here's a question. I wonder, did Jesus know what he was sending his disciples into in order to test them? He saw, this is what Jameson Fawcett Brown says, quote, He saw this from his mountaintop, and though and through the darkness of the night, for his heart was all with them, yet would he not go to their relief until his own time came. In other words, about nine hours out there rowing against that wind, and Jesus is up there on the mountain looking at them and not coming to their relief. And I'm telling you, this is just so typical of how God works with Christians. A lot of times he's going to leave you to fight a battle in faith. You have to trust that he's going to come to your rescue even though you can't see him. I'm sure those disciples were thinking, why in the world did Jesus leave us alone in this terrible situation? He made us get into the boat. The, the Two of the parallel passages say Jesus made them get into the boat. Now, maybe that's too strong, but it, it was he who dismissed them into that sea. Maybe he knew the storm was coming. Maybe he was omniscient. Well, maybe he didn't know if he didn't use his omniscient power to know that. He still could see, naturally, that they were in the midst of a terrible storm, and it didn't come to him. came to him at the last minute. That is great sermon material there, ladies and gentlemen. Now, Mark says he came to them around 3 in the morning. So does Matthew, around 3 in the morning. Well, the actual Greek is fourth watch. And there's a problem because the Jews used a different system of measuring time than the Romans did. The Romans, in my opinion, is easier to understand, so we'll take that up first. The first watch is between 6 o'clock and 9 o'clock at night. Second watch is between 9 and midnight. Third watch is between midnight and 3 o'clock. And the fourth watch is between 3 and 6 o'clock. So when it says it at the fourth watch, it's around 3 in the morning. 3, 4, 5 in the morning. Now, he, the gospel writers could be using the Jewish method of 
measuring time. But the problem with that is the Jews dispute whether there's three watches or four watches. The NIV study Bible says the first watch is from sunset to 10. The second watch is from 10 to 2 in the morning, 10 o'clock at night to 2 o'clock in the morning. And the third watch is between 2 o'clock in the morning and sunrise. So if, you, if Matthew is using Matthew and Mark are using the Jewish method of measuring time, the fourth, well, they wouldn't be using the Jewish method because the Jews don't have a fourth watch, except that some Jews disputed whether there was three or four watches. Some Jews said there were four watches. Well, I think it's easier just to take the Roman method and say this was late at night, the dead of night, or maybe right at sunrise after a long nine hours of rowing in a storm. And then they see Jesus walking on the water. Now, this is not a normal thing, of course, for somebody to walk on the water. And John chapter 6, verse 18 says it was a high wind that arose. In other words, this was a bodacious storm that they were dealing with. It was bad enough that Jesus had sent them away without him to protect them. I'm sure they were thinking. But then they had to make the voyage at night. Got themselves in trouble. And I mentioned earlier that Matthew and Mark, I mentioned that parallel passages, Matthew 14:22 and Mark 6:45 say that Jesus made them get into the boat. And James and Fawcett and Brown say that this shows that the disciples didn't really want to go. They were forced to get into the boat. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat, Matthew 14, 22. Mark 6, 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. Well, I don't know the Greek. I don't know if you can put that much weight on the Greek. It might have just been he caused the disciples to get in the boat. But at any rate, it was under his direction that they were in trouble. How many times when you follow Jesus do you obey his word, you you pray, you do, you have peace in your heart, and the next thing you know you're up to your eyeballs and deep doo-doo, and you say, well, what did I do wrong? Or Jesus, why did you do this to me? You know, if you're, depends on how rebellious you are, how you react to that situation. But Jesus will get you out. You just got to trust him. That's what faith is all about. Now, I mentioned that they all saw Jesus walking on the water. How did they see? Well, remember, it was getting close to daybreak, between 3 and 6 o'clock a.m., the fourth watch. Or it could just be moonlight. They saw him. I'm assuming it's moonlight. Can you imagine what a ghostly-looking figure that was? And why, why do you think they were afraid? Well, the disciples had two things to be afraid of. They, they, of course, were afraid of the storm. But they also were probably afraid that they were looking at a ghost. And Jesus wants to dispel the fear that they're looking at a ghost. So he says, look, it's me. Don't worry about it. The ancients back then were big on ghosts. And I, by the way, I said they, we might think that they saw a ghost. Actually, it says in Matthew 14, verse 26, they explicitly said, it's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. The disciples might have thought that a ghost, in their terminology, was a demon in human form. Here's a good quote from John Gill. They, the Jews, say a great many things of one Lilith that has its name from a Hebrew word meaning the night, a she-demon that used to appear in the night with a human face and carry off young children and kill them. Some such frightful notions had possessed the minds of the disciples. And sailors especially were subject to that notion that ghostly sights portend evil. They could have thought it was the same demon that raised the storm was walking on the water to get them. So let's put ourselves in the minds of those disciples back then. They were scared out of their minds. And that's why Jesus said, have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Now here we come to an interesting thing. Mark and John, of the two parallel passages, don't mention the interesting story of Peter walking on the water. Where Jesus, where Jesus said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Well, I went over that starting in Matthew 14, verse 28. And I've done an audio on that, so I'm not going to do it again here. But I will say this. 
just to summarize that, Jesus walked on, uh, Peter walked on the water to Jesus when, Je when he heard Jesus' voice. So he responded to the voice of Jesus. When you respond to the voice of Jesus, that's when faith-like things happen. Instead of you responding to a faith formula or to the, your faith, in, if you, uh, re responding to the so-called faith in your heart. But he responded to Jesus' voice. He looked at the circumstances, the churning waves, took his eyes off of Jesus and began to sink. The sermon applications are clear there. Jesus then rebuked him, O oh, you of little faith, picked him up and walked him back into the boat. And everybody says, see there, Peter had little faith. And I always like to make the point, yeah, would you have gotten out of the boat and walked on the water? He had more faith than I would have had. Jesus had high expectations of faith. The fact that he walked on the water, you would have thought he would have said, well, Peter, you started out good. You didn't quite end it up right, but you had a lot of faith to get out of the boat. No, he didn't say that. He said, you of little faith. He expected those disciples to believe. Moving along to Mark chapter 6, verse 51 and 52. Then he got into the boat with them. And again, it was actually Jesus and Peter. And Matthew 14 says they got into the boat. But Mark doesn't mention Peter, just mentions Jesus getting into the boat with them. And the wind ceased. They were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. What had they not understood? They didn't understand that Jesus was the Son of God and he can do a lot of big miracles. I don't understand how you could watch Jesus feed 5,000 people and not understand exactly who he is. That was a tremendous miracle. And now he did it again. And they were completely astounded. They still couldn't believe what they were seeing. It was almost like it was too big to be true. Instead, their hearts were hardened. Now, John Gill says they weren't hardened because of rebellion, but just because of stupidity. Well, either way, doesn't really think about it. You just seen an incredible miracle feeding them five thousand, and now they, and they were astounded. Now, I can understand why they would be astounded again. Every time I would, I ever, you know, every time you see a miracle like that, I would be astounded. But not understanding about the loaves, not understanding that Jesus was the Son of God that can do miracles, I have trouble understanding how the disciples did not understand. But anyway, it says they didn't. I speculated as to why Mark left out the story of Peter walking on the water. I, to me, that's a big part of the story. But maybe it was because Mark got his information from Peter, as we know, and maybe Mark didn't want to mention Peter's failing because he knew Peter was going to read that gospel and doesn't make doesn't put Peter in quite a high light. But on the other hand, you know, the denying of Jesus three times is worse than that, and that's recorded. Luke doesn't mention this th the Peter walking on the water either. Either maybe Luke didn't want to embarrass Peter. I don't know, but they embarrassed him plenty with the cock crowing th three time denial at the cock's crow. So I don't know. I don't know why they left it out, but it, but they did. John six twenty one says that their fear was taken away, verse 21 in John 6. Then they were willing to take him on board, and at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. They were willing. They knew he wasn't a ghost. So they took him on board. And then when they got into the, when Jesus and Peter got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshipped him and said, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now John 6, verse 21 says, Then they were willing to take him on board, and at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. Now I think that's just an artifact of the Greek at once, immediately, the boat was at the shore. Some people like to get into this. You could say, oh, the boat got there instantly because the wind miraculously ceased. I don't mean it means instantly. It just means they got there quicker, a lot quicker than when the wind was blowing. So that's the easiest way to explain that. The NIV Study Bible says some people believe it's a direct miracle because immediately, I don't believe that. John Gill says not only the wind ceased, but another miracle was wrought. The ship was in an instant at the place where they intended to go. Why would you say that? I mean, what's the purpose of that miracle? Adam Clark, the evangelist, seems to speak of their sudden arrival there as extraordinary and miraculous. 
Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, quote, This additional miracle, for as such as it is manifestly related, it is recorded here alone. Yet all this, all that is meant seems to be that as the storm was suddenly calm, so the little bark, propelled by the secret power of the Lord of Nature now sailing in it, glided through the now unruffled waters, and while they were wrapped in wonder at what had happened, not heeding their rapid motion was found at port. Now, he calls it a miracle. Well, I guess he's talking about the calming of the sea. But then he talks about the fact that the boat was suddenly at the other side was a psychological thing. They just weren't, they were just thinking about what happened, talking to Jesus, and time passed quickly. Psychological time passed quickly, and they were there, and I think that's what the answer is. The Bible is so full of miracles, I don't see why we have to manufacture miracles. I don't, I don't see, unless there's no other way to explain something. But there's plenty of easy ways to explain this. They just got there quickly. The wind had ceased. Or psychologically, it seemed like they got there quicker. Well, however it happened. The safe arrival of the boat on the opposite shore was a miracle by Jesus. Let's look at Matthew 14, 32-33 again, a parallel passage, it's, and get a few more details out of that. When they got into the boat, Jesus and Peter, the wind ceased. It doesn't say that Jesus directly stopped the wind. It's a passive voice, the wind ceased, but it's obvious that it was Jesus that did it. And then it says, Then those in the boat worshipped him and said, Truly, you are the Son of God. Well, they recognize that Jesus is the Son of God here. But now in Mark 6, verse 52, it said they had not understand about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. So how do you reconcile that? Well, I'm sure that their hearts were hardened while the storm was going on. Then once the storm ceased, they understood that Jesus was the Son of God. So I don't think it's any problem of reconciling that. But because of that little contradiction here, some people say that that was not the disciples who said you are the son of God because it says in Matthew 14 20 33 then those in the boat and that would be could include people like the ship's captain the owner of the boat and the sailors and other people besides the disciples the idea being that the disciples already knew that he was the son of God then other people then later confessed he was the son of God I think that's a stretch here's a quote from Adam Clark that they had any doubts concerning his being the promised Messiah is far from being clear. In other words, the disciples, did they have any doubts? Well, no, it doesn't. I don't think they had doubts, Adam Clark says. Well, it says their hearts were hard in Mark 6:52, And I'm sure Clark would say, yeah, well, that was during the storm, not after the storm was, was taken away. Clark says that after all the miracles they had seen, they would know that Jesus was the Son of God already. I do not believe that. I believe that they just made a fresh confession that Jesus was the Son of God, having seen a new miracle, because they were slow to believe, just like we all are. All right, let's finish with Mark chapter 6, verses 53 through 56 says this, When they had crossed over, that means the disciples and Jesus in the boat crossed over the Sea of Galilee, they came to land at Gennesaret and beached the boat. Now remember, they were going to Capernaum and... What is Gennesaret? Well, Gennesaret is the plain on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And if you'll look at tight, directly to the west, in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, is Magdala, right a little bit. And look at the Sea of Galilee like it was a clock face. A little bit going towards 6 o'clock is Tiberias. And going a little bit up, to, up towards 10 o'clock is, is the town of Gennesaret. And then going a little bit up, Moving around the clock face when you get about 10 o'clock high, maybe 11 o'clock high, is Capernaum. So that's a, uh, that's not a problem of reconciliation. He went to Gennesaret, which is the, either the region of the city. If it was the region, Capernaum's in the region. If it was the city, Capernaum's right next to Gennesaret. So that's not a problem. I perhaps should have mentioned the reconciliation problem comes because in John 6, verse 24, 
says this, When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus when they found him on the other side of the sea. So Jesus had either landed at Gennesaret and then walked on up to Capernaum, or he went straight to Capernaum either way, depending on whether you're talking about the Capernaum being in the plain of Gennesaret or whether Jesus landed at the city of Gennesaret and then walked on up to Capernaum. Now notice that when he got there to Capernaum, people from all around the vicinity were carrying the sick old match to wherever they heard he was. So the same old story, almost massive hysteria as people want to get saved. If you're carrying somebody on a mat, that means they're lame, they can't walk. So this is big miracles going on. And they said they wanted to touch the tassel of his robe. Maybe they had heard the earlier healing of the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years who just touched the tassel of his robe. And they were made completely well, maybe it was Jameson Fawcett Brown points that out, or maybe it was a similar miracle they had seen just by somebody touching Jesus. Wearing a tassel, by the way, was what rabbis did. That was in compliance with the ceremonial law. Numbers chapter 15, verse 38. Speak to the Israelites and tell them that throughout their generations they are to make tassels for the corners of their garments and put a blue cord on the tassel at each corner. Of course, that's supposed to remind them to keep the law. Jesus was keeping the ceremonial law. Now, John, in the parallel passage of John, John, there's a little bit more detail here. I'm not going to go into the discourse that Jesus had with the people who came back from the feeding of the 5,000. And John, at the end of John 6, Jesus has a big discourse with them. But I will just uh, briefly mention their meeting in Capernaum uh, after the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Let's start with John 6, verse 22 through 24. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea knew there had been only one boat. This is talking about the people in the wilderness near Bethsaida on the northeastern side, right near where the feeding of the 5,000 was. They knew that Jesus and the disciples had got there by one boat. They also knew that, as John goes on to say, they also knew that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. So the crowd saw the disciples leaving by themselves and Jesus not leaving. Some boats from Tiberias, that's on the other side of the lake, came near the place where they ate the bread after the Lord gave thanks. Well, that's near the place of the feeding of the 5,000. When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. So Jesus' strategy worked, stratagem worked perfectly. He figured he'd send the disciples off. They were gone. He would be disappeared up in the, on the mountain where nobody could see him. And so the crowd's going to say, well, no more action here. We've got to go back to Capernaum. We're all... All this activity started to start with, and so they head back to Capernaum. And then we get to John 6, verse 25 through 27. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they went back, by the way, on those boats that came from Tiberias. That's why John mentioned that little detail. That's how they got back over there. John chapter 6, verse 25 through 27. When they found him on the other side of the sea, i.e. at Capernaum, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? How did you get here? He walked on the water. See, that's something a little bit off their radar scope. Jesus didn't answer him directly. He answered and said, I assure you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. This is one of these verses where people say, see there, Jesus, people weren't looking for Jesus properly as a spiritual leader. And usually they say they were only looking for the miracles. They weren't looking for the teaching. Well, here Jesus doesn't chastise them for looking for the miracles. He says, in fact, he says exactly the opposite. He says, you weren't looking for me because of the miracles. You're looking for me not because of the miracles. Nothing wrong with miracles, folks. Don't misuse verses to say there's something wrong with it. It's not either or, it's both and. Miracles, physical food, and spiritual food, they all go together. 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, I have now returned from my splice discussing Mark 6, verses 45 through 52, and thus we are now finished discussing John 6, 24, 14 through 24. I went a little bit over, discussed a few little verses in John 6, 25, 26, and 27 in the discussion, but that's all right. For right now, we're going to stop it. We're going to stop at verse 24, and the next audio I'll pick up with verse 25. And that topic will be the collapse of the Galilean campaign because Jesus will not conform to popular messianic expectations. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.